0: Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Okay. Hmm. Last night, um, Richard talked about um, right effort, or was it? Was it last night? No, Kamala spoke last night. But um, a couple of nights ago, Richard uh, spoke of right effort. <clears throat> or maybe it was this morning in the instructions, too. <laughs> <laughs> you remember, though. Uh, right effort or wise effort. And he spoke about it. Um, he said there were two aspects of, of it. One was, um, as he spoke about bringing things into balance, not over-efforting and not being too lax. Um, And then he also uh, mentioned for, uh, alluded to another aspect of right effort, or he spoke about it for a little while, um, about wise effort or right effort in terms of um, going in the right direction and cultivating wholesome states. Remember that? Um, I want to talk a bit more about that tonight, um, talk about this aspect of right or wise effort, and particularly one uh, part of that that often uh, gets mm, short shrift or um, not, not given, I think, as much attention as I, I think it deserves and uh, so that's going to be part of the talk and also um, another aspect of the talk and um, different, uh, different elements of this cultivating of uh, wise or right effort. <coughs> the, the, um, the term right effort or wise effort is it's in the Eightfold Path. As probably many of you know, the, the sixth link of the eightfold path, um, right or wise effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And it is healthy to um, look in terms of effort in the dimension of how much, how little. Um, if there's, um, um, if I'm I'm showing up in the uh, in a skillful way for my practice, a very important element. I spoke about it when I gave a, a first talk on uh, the five faculties, but more, um, um, more technically the definition of, of right or wise effort has four elements to it. Two having to do with unwholesome states and two having to do with wholesome states. Unwholesome states, or akusala, are states that are suffering. And when they're experienced, not only are they suffering in the moment, but they lead to more suffering, unless you know how to work with them. And those two aspects of the four wise efforts are guarding against unwholesome states when they arise, and when, uh, sorry, guarding against them before they arise so that they don't arise as best you can. And when they do arise, to learn how to overcome them. Unwholesome states, akusala, you probably can figure out a few of them. Greed, hatred, delusion, you know those guys. Fear, jealousy, uh, envy, Um all the states of um, torment and that are that are unpleasant, <clears throat> and it's really important to understand how to work with those. We spend a lot of time on those, and we've talked about not being afraid of them and learning how to open to them in a skillful way, a little at a time, so you know your limits and your capacities, but not being uh, held back so that you don't touch uh, touch them and learn how to process and transform them. The other side of the equation are wholesome states, kusala, which um, and the two aspects of that are cultivating wholesome states. And when these wholesome states arise to maintain and increase wholesome states. This is part of wise effort to not only cultivate them, but to deepen them and to maintain them and increase them even. And I wanted to talk particularly about that side of the equation, and um, with a, a bit more emphasis on that last one to maintain and increase wholesome states. So it's important, of course, to um, understand and consciously include the unwholesome because they visit us very um, all too uh, frequently and regularly. Um but it's also just as important to remember that this path is about cultivating and deepening wholesome states. And sometimes we need to remember that, and that's why I wanted to share the this talk and this um this subject, because we will see what we look for and what we focus on. And we will incline the mind if you are at what's called a confirmation bias in, uh, in modern uh, uh, neuroscience, where your brain will notice what it is looking for. So if you are looking, for instance, and have the confirmation bias that um, that everybody around is, um, is someone to be wary of, then that's what you'll notice. Your brain will selectively confirm that belief and will miss all the times when that's not so. It's just... The way we're wired up, and likewise in your practice, if you're looking for defilements of mind, you know it reminds me. Actually, I'm thinking about it. it was a, I was a psychology major in uh, in college and, and graduate school, and I remember if you're ever a psych major in uh, having a textbook, if you ever took a course on abnormal psychology, you know, you'd read. I would read one chapter after another and say, "Yep, I've got that neurosis." You know, <laughs> "Yep, that's me too." You know, "That's me too." It, when they got to the psychosis, that was a little tricky. Also, "Yep, that's me too." Um, but that's. How it works if you're inclining the mind or you're on the lookout for dukkha, you'll find it. It's the first noble truth, isn't it? And I'm just remembering uh, a quick anecdote when I was a boy learning to ride a bicycle, um, and uh, it was a Sunday morning, my father was was uh, teaching me how to stay balanced and I was so excited at some point I, I got the idea of balance and it was Sunday morning no one, I thought, uh, we thought out on the streets and going down my block and he said, okay, there you go, off you go and I was so excited. Wow, I'm really staying balanced here. But I hadn't mastered breaking. <clears throat> and as i'm going down the street this is like 65 years ago <laughs> i still remember it in the distance i see these grown-ups and a baby carriage <laughs> and i see it there and i kind of freeze i don't know i forget how to break and my my mind goes Don't hit the baby carriage, (laughs) don't hit the baby carriage, you can guess. It was like radar. (laughs) I've often thought of that little baby and hope that he or she is okay. But it was traumatic. It it was a couple of years before I got on the bike again. Because that was what my mind was looking for. Even though I didn't want it, no, don't go there. And that's often how it works. So while it's essential to be able to, to not deny and push away dukkha, to really learn how to open up to it, it's only half the practice. And um, to understand that we naturally tend towards being vigilant. That's how we're wired up. I forget if I mentioned here that almond-shaped cluster of neurons in our, in our brain, the amygdala, that looks out to protect us for danger. And when we're stressed, it particularly fires over time. And there we are, very vigilant and looking for danger. And it can happen in practice too. You know, oh, this is, this is, I'm in a tough period, I'm in a hard period, and we're looking for how dukkha seems to be everywhere. <clears throat> I forget if I mentioned it here, but uh, my friend Rick Hansen, uh, neuroscience expert, and he teaches here at, at Spirit Rock, uh, and he's written some wonderful books, Hardwiring Happiness in Buddha's Brain. He says, um, the brain is like Teflon for positive experiences and Velcro for negative ones. And I came across a, a study uh, a number of years ago that said, for one negative encounter, for most people it takes seven positive encounters to balance that out. why did you say that? And seven times people say, oh, hi, how are you? Nice to see you. Three. Oh, yes. To finally balance it out. Unless you're practiced at looking for what's good. Mm. So it's important and it takes practice to look for what's good, to notice it. Otherwise, it, it gets really heavy. The practice can get quite heavy at times. And I know um, that this can be so from my own practice, um, as I forget if I mentioned here, but um, I um, I had a, a long honeymoon period with, uh, with the practice, with the Dharma. I was just in love with the Dharma, thinking everything, is, all you have to do is be mindful. Uh, but at some point I... Um, I lost my joy and I got very serious about practice, really serious, dead, serious about practice and um, and so I, as probably many of you know, I wrote a book uh, and do a course on awakening joy because I had uh, I saw how I was just focusing on on some misunderstandings around the teachings. And I, I want to actually share with you a couple on a more Dharma uh, teaching level. How it can easily be misconstrued so that you don't um, uh, you don't see the positive side of the equation. Remember it was mentioned um, about some vega, a very profound Uh, important understanding. Remember seeing, um, just having an urgency. And this is one definition for Sam Vega. The oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life (laughs) as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of one's own complacency and foolishness in having let oneself live so blindly and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. Doesn't sound like a lot of fun, right? You read that and say, let's get out of here as fast as we can. But this is a really important understanding in your practice. The the key words that sometimes can be overlooked are realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. And seeing, oh, there's another way to live this life. But that subtle message can be misinterpreted and thinking, you know, get out of here, right? Uh, Another very important concept, which can be misunderstood, is that of Nibbida, N-I-B-B-I-D-A, which um, is a, a, a deeper stage of practice, Where things just don't have the same appeal. And one translation is, um, one classical translation is, um, therefore one should abide in utter disgust for the aggregates. Aggregates being a way of saying this mind-body process. One should have abide in utter disgust for these aggregates. Whoa, what's that about? Or another translation, when one is practicing in accordance with the Dhamma, one should dwell engrossed in revulsion towards the aggregates. Those are the two translations for the word nibbida. You hear that? I was, it was a big achievement for me to look in the mirror and not wince at some point in my later teens early 20s i just started to see the possibility cuz i didn't like what i saw and they're saying develop utter disgust you know and here in our culture it's so prevalent how appearances take on such importance and here we're we're learning to like and send metta and forgiveness and love this amazing gift that we've been given. But another translation, a better translation, is uh, when one sees it thus, one becomes disenchanted with the aggregates. Disenchanted, which is another way of saying not enchanted where the spell is broken, where instead of being entranced and enchanted, one sees through that. Doesn't mean to have disgust for it, but just not to get hooked in that trance. Wow, look at that package, you know, or this package or whatever. And that is a very important thing to understand, to break the spell of that enchantment. But so you can see how easy it is for misunderstandings to arise. And I'll share with you a passage I love from Ajahn Sumedho. Uh, I don't think I read this. He says, sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should just feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That's a good reflection on Anicca, Dukkha, and anatta, but it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty people who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. But once you have true insight, then you find that you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Because truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them, we find joy." So, I, um, I've i seen in my own practice and in many people's, we can tend to overlook the wholesome, the beautiful qualities that come through us. And we need to be reminded, you know, when we started out the retreat, Andrea gave um, some beautiful uh, teachings on relax, receive, allow, just to remind us, don't Try too hard. Don't go for being an A plus student or feel that you're not doing it good enough. Because that tendency to contract is all too prevalent when you're wanting to be doing this right and giving your whole heart to Dharma practice. And we contract. Either away from the dukkha, or in our over-efforting, or we contract around the sukha, It's so easy to contract, and in that contract- contraction is dukkha. But it's important to remember, I think, that this is a path of happiness. And I want to talk a little bit about that. The Buddha was called the happy one. The Dalai Lama starts out his his wonderful book, The Art of Happiness, with the line, The purpose of life is to be happy. The purpose of life is to be happy. That's a, a really great line. It's a great way to start a book. The purpose of life is to be happy. Because as you can get in touch with your own well-being, then all of the beautiful qualities shine through you. So this aspect of wise effort to cultivate wholesome states, which we're doing. Um, The reason why the Buddha says to cultivate them ultimately is not just so you can feel good, but they create the conditions. True wholesome states create the conditions from which awakening can happen. It's impossible to awaken from a contracted, fearful place. Although in one moment it can turn and you can see, oh, here's another way. But generally when there's a wholesomeness, when there's a feeling of openness, when there's a feeling of expansiveness and lightness, the mind is freer for the wisdom to shine through and the love to shine through. So we cultivate metta, we cultivate mindfulness, we cultivate all of these things and they're beautiful and they feel good. They feel good in the moment and they feel good uh, as we practice moving and facing in that direction. And so wholesome states show us where happiness really lies. Now one thing about these wholesome states, especially when it comes to maintaining and increasing them, you might think, well, hold on a second. Isn't that attachment? Isn't that just more contraction? Oh, this feels good. Yeah, bring it on. As soon as you try to hold on to it, it's just turned into an unwholesome state. So the way is not trying to grasp or manipulate or have an agenda. How do I keep it here? Because that is a contraction of mind and heart, which blocks. Have you noticed that? When you're in the middle of a really great experience, and you're just cruising along and then the mind says, oh, I hope this doesn't go. <laughs> yeah. How do I keep it here? Where did it go? Yeah. So the key, as the Buddha suggested, is not to grasp at it, but to really bring your full mindful attention to it. Just like in the Satipatthana Sutta, in the, the third foundation of mindfulness, he says, uh, uh, the practitioner knows the concentrated mind as the concentrated mind. The uh, unsurpassed mind is the unsurpassed mind. Not do what you can to make it here. To, to make it stay, but to really know it without taking ownership of it, just seeing, oh, and here's a wholesome state. And in one discourse, which was very impactful for me, he has the, um, he talks about the fact that along with a wholesome state, there's a feeling of uplift that accompanies it, that he calls. The gladness connected with the wholesome. And he says in this sutta, he says, that gladness connected with the wholesome, I call an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. And he says, that gladness one gains inspiration in the meaning one delights in in the meaning and in the experiencing. He said, that's a good thing. And he uses the example in this uh, discourse. He says, suppose you're in the middle of a generous act. He, He recommends in this discourse, oh, think to yourself, oh, I am generous right now. He says, that's good. Not, check it out, I hope everyone sees. I'm pretty generous, what a generous guy I am. No, he's not saying to identify with it and take take ownership of it, but he's saying, notice how good it feels for generosity to move through me. Feel the beautiful feeling that accompanies it, that gladness connected with the wholesome and equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility." Basically, here's the instruction, which I may may have said a, a few times here. It's the basic principle behind all of this. Don't miss it. Just don't miss it. Don't hold on to it. Don't be attached, but don't miss it. You're feeling calm. What a wonderful object of mindfulness it is. Knowing that it's impermanent, you don't want to miss it, right? And then when it goes, you let it go. But it nourishes you it gives you inspiration, it gives you faith, it gives you confidence. Oh wow, there's something going on here. Oh look at what happens when my mind isn't in the way. Look at all these beautiful qualities that shine through. And I'm not even trying to make anything happen. Wow, look at that. Um When you pay attention to a wholesome experience, you deepen its impact on you. Because mindfulness is one very unique wholesome state that we're cultivating here. Talked about it as I think in my, in my first talk, that it's, it's very unique in that it weakens all the unwholesome states and it strengthens all the wholesome states. It cultivates all the wholesome states. And when you apply mindfulness to a wholesome state, you deepen its impact when you are here for it. I might have said this, I forget if, if I said that Rick Hansen uh, talks about mindfulness as shining a, a, f- a spotlight and a, and a vacuum. Did I talk about this here? No? Yeah, did. And it's, so it deepens the grooves. And one thing that he mentioned, did I talk about uh, uh, dopamine and norepinephrine here already? Did I do that? No? Uh, I, I, I was just having him. I, I forget what I, I'm giving talks in a number of different places. So forgive me. I, I we were just having um, um, spending some time with him, and uh, he's writing this paper, and where where he shows why mindfulness is so uh, so powerful. When you're mindful of a very positive experience, it. You're, there's dopamine and norepinephrine that are released in the, the brain and it is then when you're present it's stored, it's, it's um, imprinted in the hippocampus in memory. Like when you have a really powerful experience, wow! It gets in there and after a while it will get transferred to the cortex. And so you remember that experience, just like you, you know, remember a, yeah, you remember something from your past. Yeah, I think I, I mentioned that here already. So mindfulness is a really important way to deepen wholesome state experiences. But mindfulness is itself a wholesome state. It feels, it, there's in itself, it's very rewarding. Have you noticed when you finally are just here and you've landed and you're not trying hard to make anything more of the moment and you're just connected? When you're really here and connected and there's no need to do anything else, Hmm. Why go any place else? Oh, it feels so great to be present for my life. You know, particularly if it's a moment that is not fraught with, uh, uh, with dukkha. But even if you're there with the dukkha and you see, if you have an understanding of, oh, I see the dukkha, and you're not taking ownership of it, Oh, I see. Oh, I see this pain. Oh, I see this fear. And that's when we can hold it with compassion. Oh, because you're seeing it. But when you are there and just present and it's not Dukkha filled, it just feels so good to be here. Have you noticed that? You know, maybe you're having those moments of mindfulness now as you string them together, particularly. I can re- and when the mind gets collected and there's some, some degree of concentration and there's a kind of unification, you don't want to be anyplace else. I can remember being at, sitting on a, a, a long retreat at IMS and I was doing just Anapana uh, uh, breath meditation for an extended period of time. And it was like... That was my whole world. And I was thinking, I had this thought came to come to me, why does anybody need drugs <laughs> when they've got the breath? Wow. That was just because I was completely there. And concentration certainly deepens that. But even those moments when you're not in very deep concentration, when you're just here and it's enough, And you don't have to add anything or take anything away. Ah, and you don't have to manufacture or have any agenda. Oh, this is cool, just being here for my life. So, this is one thing to keep in mind, that mindfulness itself is a wholesome state, not only because it cultivates the others and weakens the, the the akusala, but because itself feels really whole and complete. And uh, let me see if I can share with you a passage. I can find it. It's a beautiful passage I wanna share. Where is it? Here it is. This is from Alan Watts, a long time ago. We could say that meditation doesn't have a reason or doesn't have a purpose. In this respect, it's unlike almost all other things we do, except perhaps making music and dancing. When we we make music, we don't do it in order to reach a certain point, such as the end of the composition. If that were the purpose of music, then obviously the fastest players would be the best. (laughs) Also, when we're dancing, we're not aiming to arrive at a particular place on the floor as in a journey. When we dance, the journey itself is the point. As when we play music, the playing itself is the point. And exactly the same is true In meditation. Meditation is the discovery that the point of life is always arrived at in the immediate moment. If you meditate for an ulterior motive, that is to say to improve your mind, to improve your character, to be more efficient in your life, you've got your eye on the future and you aren't really meditating the future is a concept. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing as tomorrow. There never will be because time is always now. One meditates for no reason at all, one could say, except for the enjoyment of it. Now you might have a little quarrel with that, but um, one meditates for no reason at all, except for the enjoyment of it. Here I would interpose an essential principle that meditation is fun. It's not something you do as a grim duty. The trouble with religion today is that it's so mixed up with grim duties. You do it because it's good for you. It's a kind of self-punishment. Meditation, when correctly done, has nothing to do with all that. It's fully enjoying the present. It's a kind of delighting in the here and now. It brings us into a state of peace where we can understand that the point of life, the place where it's at, is simply here and now. So when you're here, don't miss it. Oh, how great. I don't need to add anything else to this moment. How beautiful. And it takes maybe a little bit of practice to not feel like you need a bit more entertainment, especially when it gets very quiet. For for some people, um, it's a little bit strange the first time when they get really, really quiet or it's unfamiliar, because we're so used to sense impingement. But if you can just become familiar with it, you can love the stillness. No need to do anything at all. Rest, rest in peace. You don't have to wait until you die to rest in peace. (laughs) Oh, this is peaceful. Or loving the moment, falling in love with the moment. And when you feel that connection, oh, I'm alive. I'm alive right now. Mindfulness is not grasping at the pleasant not pushing away the unpleasant, and not identifying with the experience. And here's another aspect of this wholesome quality of mindfulness that's that's quite extraordinary, and some people have, have mentioned it in their interviews. When you see, you don't have to make the moment happen. It's happening all by itself. All you need to do is show up. Have you gotten glimpses of that? And the more you try to make it happen and manipulate it, or, Oh, what can I do to make it better? Or what do I need to take away to make it better? It just gets in the way. Oh my goodness. All I have to do is be here because it's not you making that show happen anyway, not identifying with the experience. It's not up to me, and it's not me. A number of years ago, I had a a very um, impactful um, opening to this perspective. It was on a three-month course, and I somehow had fallen into this space where Everything was just so easy. It w- I was sitting for long hours, not trying. It was just, that was what's happening. And I was fairly, pretty clear and bright. It was great. Right? And on one of these longer sittings, somebody came into the hall whose practice I respected a lot very much, very sincere yogi. And I was sitting with my eyes open and she sat within my field of vision. And after 10 minutes, there she was just nodding. You know, you know when you get the nods and it's kind of mm, like that, you know, full-blown nods, mm, like that. <laughs> And there I was just kind of cruising and then the thought occurred to me I knew that space very, very well. Many hours I'd spent in that, that mode at times. And the thought occurred to me this could easily be a whole different scenario tomorrow. That could be me. And this what I was experiencing could be some somebody else. I don't know how I got there, but I was there and in in one moment, the whole room kind of spun around in this kind of strange it's hard, hard to explain kaleidoscopic shuffling and instead of it being James really being a good meditator, it was here was this energy of. Clarity and, con- and concentration. Here was sloth and torpor. Here was loving kindness. Here was restlessness and agitation. Here was compassion. And it didn't belong to anyone. And the thought, oh, look at me, was completely absurd. It didn't make any sense because I had no idea how that happened. It was so freeing it was so it was so much more impactful than being a cool meditator oh my god this is just happening all by itself all i needed to do was show up it's a very powerful thing to understand another insight at another retreat that came to me along these lines was I have no control over how concentrated or mindful I am. All I can do is have the willingness to be here and to bring myself back when I've gone with a lot of love and a lot of kindness and not taking it personally, not blaming myself, not taking credit. The blame and the credit is completely misunderstanding what's going on. There is a selflessness to this whole experience. What a relief. What a relief. I'll share with you. Let's see how we're doing. Uh, Another story, just to drive this home. My first retreat, I had this very cool sitting. It was the first time on, it was my first, very first retreat. This is in 1974 in Great Barrington and I had this one sitting where it didn't matter if the bell never ended. And I thought, wow, this is so cool. And then the next few days I couldn't recreate it and it was really frustrating. And I went into an interview with Joseph and I said, basically I had it and I've lost it. How do I get it back? And he told me this story. I was so grateful this is on my first retreat. He said, oh yeah, I know what that's like. I was in one, at one point in my practice in, in India where every time I sat, my body was just filled with light and my mind was so clear. And then I went back to the States knowing that I was going to return in another month or so. And I just, I didn't do that much practice and got a whole lot of input. And then when I went back to Bodh Gaya to practice, I remembered very well what, where I'd been. And he said, I went and said, yeah, okay, now I'm ready for the good stuff. <laughs> and he said, I sat down and my... Mine was like mud and my body was like twisted steel. And then he said, I spent nearly two years trying to recreate that experience. Even though his teachers told him, just be with things as they are, there was some subtle wanting. And then he looked at me and he leaned forward and he said, I was the dummy. I did it for you. You don't have to be the dummy. (laughs) I bowed to him. Thank you so much. It's not up to you to make your retreat happen. And that freedom of seeing it's not me, it's not my meditation for the good or the bad or the ugly Ah, I just show up, and when I am here, how, what grace, don't miss it. Another wholesome state that I want to particularly focus on, that mindfulness also, it's, it's embedded in the mindfulness, is a quality of appreciation. You can think of, a, of mindfulness as appreciating the moment because this moment has never been here before and it will never be here again. And in your life of finite moments, and we don't know how many we have, no one does, this is a moment worthy of our attention. And when we pay attention, there's a whole show of life revealing itself to us. And so I want to talk about appreciation and particularly in the sense of wonder and curiosity and interest. Investigation in the factors of enlightenment. That's a really um, wholesome dimension if it's done properly. And I know it's been mentioned in here, be careful of the word investigation, trying to dissect your experience and analyze it and work really hard. And that's not the, the source of skillful investigation. It's really having your natural curiosity want to learn. We all want to learn, isn't it fun to learn something new? You know, I I, I don't I didn't share it here. I share it mo- most retreats. I'll sh- share it now about this the birthday card. Did I mention the birthday card? So I have a birthday card at home, and I've never given it away because I love it so much. <laughs> Little attachment, yeah. And on the the front is this infant that obviously has just pulled a booger from his nose. <clears throat> and he's mesmerized. And you open it up, and it says, You always were easy to entertain. Happy birthday. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> For me, anyway. If you can get fascinated with a booger, you can get fascinated with anything. But it's seeing things with fresh eyes. Oh, wow. How exciting. And if you're thinking, oh, I have to be with the breath. We just had one a moment ago. You know, <laughs> this is, that's the point. You know. You're missing out on the, point, on the idea that every moment is unique. Every moment is different. And to bring that kind of interest that curiosity that's not trying to make anything happen, that just wants to learn, that just loves to discover. This brings practice alive. It's exciting. It's fun. There's a a line, uh, Nisargadat Maharaj wrote, I am that. He has this one, the dialogue that he has with somebody who was uh, talking about how 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 tedious practice can be and how he's just kind of, he was just whining, oh, what's the point? And says, Why should I pay attention? And this argodot says to him, you've done the most amazing thing. You've made life boring. You've done the most amazing thing. You've made life boring. It's the only show in town. (laughs) I hope you realize that. Or Fritz Perl saying, boredom is really lack of attention. And to have that that sense of, of curiosity, not with any kind of hypothesis that you're looking for, If you have a hypothesis, hypothesis, then you end up just seeing, well, let's see, was I right and clever or not? But in order to let yourself be surprised, continually surprised by life, oh, how cool, you're on an adventure of discovery. Einstein says, uh, there are two ways to live your life. One as is as if nothing is a miracle, and the other is as if everything is a miracle. I'd suggest go for the latter. Because then it's all just so much fun and worthy of our attention. Every moment is sacred in that. Here's a, if I can find it, another... This is Einstein, another Einstein quote. The most beautiful and profound emotion we can experience is the sensation of the mystical. It is the sower of all true science. He to whom this emotion is a stranger who can no longer wonder and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead. So when you have that kind of um, curiosity and interest and you're just looking for the fun of it, no conclusion, no pass-fail test for life, no agenda, just because it makes it so much more rich to have that quality of discovery. When I, my instructions, and it's beautiful the instructions of, uh, that um, Andrea gave, of relaxed, rec- relax, receive, and allow. My instructions to myself are r- relaxed, bring a relaxed, interested, and kind awareness relaxed. You don't want to over-effort or get tight, but be interested. Show up so you can keep on waking up and learn and bring a sense of kindness with all of that. Mm -hmm. A number of years ago, again, I was uh, at at a longer retreat and I went into um, my interview with Joseph. And this is about five years into my practice. It was my second Three-month retreat, and I went into the interview, and I said, "I don't know what I've been doing up until now, but this is like, like I've fa- Alice in Wonderland, fallen into a whole new reality." And he said, "Oh yeah, I, I know that feeling." I said, "You do?" He said, "Yeah, I get it every time I sit." And then he leaned forward and he said, "And you know what? We're at the tip of the iceberg." I'll never forget that. My, I even now get chills. I can hear him saying with this sparkle in his eye, we're at the tip of the iceberg. And he wasn't saying, oh, there's so much more that we have to learn and oh, this is going to be so long. He was saying, how exciting life keeps on revealing itself. So I... Offer that, there are many, many wholesome states that we can explore. And want to get back to the the original point of cultivating the wholesome states and um, maintaining and increasing them when they're here by just enjoying them, just savoring them, just allowing them to be experienced not with grasping, not with identifying, look at me, but just, it's like moments of grace. And the more you can cultivate the wholesome, the more, especially when you're not taking ownership of the experience, you're creating the space, that open-hearted space, and that space that lets go and doesn't try to be the meditator for awakening to shine through. So that's why it said that the Dharma is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. In the beginning, oh my goodness, there's another way. In the middle, learning all the time how exciting and all the beautiful qualities of heart and mind that are cultivated in that process, including compassion when things are hard and loving kindness and seeing who you really are and amazement and joy and love and wisdom and good in the end because those wholesome states create the ground of the awakened mind and heart. So I just encourage you um, to incorporate this into your understanding of practice, not just about working with and dealing with the dukkha, but let yourself delight in the moment and let yourself really feel the gladness of the wholesome when it's there as a nourishment. And that gives you a space to be able to process all the dukkha that naturally comes. As it's said in Taoism, there's 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. If you just focus on the sorrows, you're missing the miracles of life. If you just focus on the joy, then you're living in denial. But to Cultivate that wholesome so you can open up to all with a, a, a grace and a, a wise heart. Okay, so let's just sit for a few moments. Thank you for your kind attention and uh, enjoy your walking and we'll come back for one more sitting, some chanting, and uh, maybe a little treat at the end to tuck you in, (laughs) just a little carrot so you'll come.